This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Well, hello, all you beautiful chicks and dudes of all sorts. This is Suave Rob Suarez, the bitchin' double-X daredevil star of Suave Rob's amazing ass-saving association, here with another ass-saving tip, totally free from me to you, to help you save your ass so you can live to sit another day. Now, back in the day, when dudes were dudes, this one dude, Benchmark Bob, buddy of mine, he had this little accident. He tried frying up an egg when he was totally hammered. So he washed a pan, then didn't dry it, then put a shitload of butter in it, then turned on the heat. Well, when you do that, chicks and dudes, the water makes the oil go splatso all over your own personal face. And good old Benchmark got his bench marked, if you know what I mean. Like, when he took his apron away from his face, it looked less like a face and more like someone had stepped on a pepperoni pizza. I don't like to think about it. But that goes to show you, you know? Always dry your pans before you put oil in them, man. Especially if you're frying an egg. Want to know where I learned all this gonzo shit? I got it all done up pretty for you in Suave Rob's Awesome Adventures, by J. Daniel Sawyer. Come share the awesomeness with me, my brothers, because you never know. The ass you save may be your own. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 177. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week I bring you a piece of my fresh new fiction and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 35 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Kate and the Special Investigations Division have arrested Nevin Ardlito, the supposed ringleader behind the spree of murder kidnappings. But something is wrong with this picture. Nevin was found with the bodies of five accomplices, who apparently committed suicide in order to supercharge an occultation spell on Nevin's house. Nevin claims these were the only people who helped him, but Kate and Callie Linder both know that's impossible. Callie is scared the police are just looking for a scapegoat, and now that they have one, they won't even bother trying to find her mentor, Silas, who is one of the most recent victims to disappear. Kate thinks that her boss, Captain Shaw, has something else in mind. By putting the media's attention on Nevin, she's making sure that the focus is taken off of special investigations and whatever Shaw plans to do next. With luck, the remaining bad guys will let their guard down, and then Kate and her team can move in. Meanwhile, Kate has been dealing with a seemingly unrelated mystery, a strange skunk morph named Murakir, who has been showing up at odd times and places and might be stalking her. 
Kate first met Murray inside a dream, where a quiet voice was calling to Kate to free it from a prison cell. Murakir told Kate that he's been hearing the same voice for most of his life, and whatever it is, it needs to stay locked up. But the skunk man also seems to be paranoid, possibly even mentally ill. He warned Kate repeatedly about a faceless they that is ostensibly all around them. The last time he spoke to her, Murray warned Kate, Don't let them distract you, detective. That's what they do. Wheels within wheels. Deception piled on deception. They plant the truth inside a lie, which they conceal inside an unrelated truth. This isn't the first time they've done it. Everything repeats itself. Kate dismissed Murakir as a madman or a fool. But one thing is clear. The voice in her dreams is still there. And last night, she very nearly let it out. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 35 Kate arrived at work at 12.30, still feeling groggy and irritable. She clutched her double-sized, espresso-boosted cup of black coffee, like the nectar of the gods, as she made her way to the missing person's desk. Lizzie was still out, presumably on her research trip with Callie's boyfriend. Yellow sticky notes were attached to Lizzie's monitor and Kate's. Come see me as soon as you get in. Shaw. Obediently, Kate went down the hall and around the corner to Shaw's office. The door was open, and the captain stood leaning over her desk, an array of papers and photographs spread out before her. Kate knocked on the doorframe and stepped inside. You wanted to see me, Cap? Shaw looked up, smiled tightly, and nodded. Kate, good. Is Lizzie with you? Kate shook her head. She's chasing down a lead. Should be back soon. Shaw looked up in interest. Oh? What lead? Kate walked over to stand in front of the desk. From the look of things, Shaw was trying to piece together some scattered threads of evidence on the white, with questionable effectiveness. Well, this bastard Ardlito was in Lizzie's common room at Chisholm. She thought his partners might be from Chisholm, too, and that's how they met. Shaw nodded once. That fits what he told us. An alumni group, he said. Yeah, I heard he was cooperating, Kate said ironically. I saw your press conference this morning. It was pretty clever getting the media to obsess over Ardlito like that. Let the bad guys think we were thrown off their trail. She gestured at the table. So what's our next move? Shaw looked like she'd bitten into something unpleasant. We're going to have to keep up the charade with Ardlito for a little while, she said. I don't think he'll lead us to the real people in charge, but he is talking. The commissioner will expect us to work him for whatever we can get. More than anything else, the brass wants a story they can sell to the public. Give them a villain wrapped up with a neat little bow. Kate frowned. But it can't possibly be true. There's no way six people did this all on their own. You know that, and I know that, Shaw said. The public doesn't know, and the politicians don't care. Her lip twisted in bitter irony as she gestured at the scattered reports and photographs. 
Nobody wants to hear about a vast criminal conspiracy. Not until you've got enough evidence to bring them down. Otherwise, you end up sounding like a crazy person. Right. Kate sat down on the visitor's chair with a sigh. Well, we'll get there. We will, Shaw agreed. She sat on the edge of the desk next to Kate and steepled her fingers, tapping the fingertips together. So Lizzie's investigating something on the Chisholm connection? Yeah, she went up to the school to see if she could find any more information about how they were picking their victims. Look into Ardlito's associations on campus, that kind of thing. Good thinking, Shaw said. We should have more for her to look into soon. Ardlito is spilling faster than a sieve. Even if it's 90% lies, he's going to screw up at some point and give away something real. Who's doing the interrogation? Kate asked. Barker and Morris? If you want to hop in, though, they could probably use a break. He's been keeping them busy. Kate raised her eyebrows at this. I'll do whatever you want me to, Cap, but I'm probably not your best choice if you want useful intel. I've got no interest in playing nice with this asshole. Shaw smirked and made an accepting gesture with one hand. Fair enough. Maybe you can take a look at Lieutenant Jaguer's report from last night, then. If there's anything you saw that she might have missed, we'll want it on the record. I know you have a sharp eye for details. Yes, ma'am, Kate said. After a moment, she added, Cap, do we have any intel yet on where the kidnappers were holding their victims? My street-side contact is still trying to find her mentor, and if we don't get him back soon... I understand, Shaw said. I'll tell Barker and Morris to push for details on that. As soon as I have a lead for you, I'll let you know. Kate bowed her head. Thank you, ma'am. Was there anything else? Yes, Shaw said. We're getting some new information on the white that needs checking out. Other lines of investigation not related to Ardlito. I'll email you the details. Get Lizzie back here as soon as possible. I want you to move on this while the intel is fresh. Understood, Cap. Captain Shaw made a dismissive gesture, and Kate headed back to her desk. She sent Lizzie a message on her phone. Cap wants you back here to help chase down a lead. Can Will spare you yet? The response came back a minute later. I suppose so. We're on the trail of something significant, though. This pattern has happened before. The kidnappings, the murders, the lone confession, all of it. It's uncanny. Kate sat back in her chair, stunned at the implications. Against her will, her memory brought up the words that the odd little skunk morph had said to her yesterday. This isn't the first time they've done it. Everything repeats itself. She texted back to Lizzie. Holy shit. Okay, pull together whatever you've got so far and get back here. I think I just connected to another clue I didn't know was a clue. This time, Lizzie responded within moments. All right, leaving presently. Kate woke up her computer and started hunting through the applications menu. MCPD had a virtual sketch artist program, which they used with cooperating witnesses to create images of suspects and other persons of interest. The program was designed to be easy to use. Faces were built by clicking through wheels of options for species, ethnicity, eye shape, eye color, and more than a dozen other traits. This being Metamore, the variety of images available was truly impressive. Kate found the program, opened it, and put together two composite images, one of the skunk as he had first appeared to her, and the brown-furred illusion he had worn in Justice Tower. 
Then she took both images and ran them through a facial recognition search on the MCPD database. To her surprise, a match came up almost immediately. Not in the mugshot records, but in the database of government employees. Kate leaned in close to the screen, started reading, then rubbed her eyes and looked again. Murakir Kunas, alias Findall of Sathmore, height 145 centimeters, weight 58 kilograms, species human, theriomorph, skunk, eyes brown, orbital prosthesis left, hair black slash white, DOB 0680-01-01, place of birth Glen Avery, Kingdom of Metamore. Mage License, 000-000-0000-413. Master, Air. Grandmaster, Earth. Adeptus Exemptus, Luton Animus Tradition. Guild Affiliation, None. Formerly Hayorn School, CMGL-00318. Service Record. Long Scouts, 705 to 707. Ministry of Defense, Special Service Corps, 731 to present. Security Clearance, Top Secret, Argent 4. Current Posting, Classified, Top Secret, Argent 4. Kate felt dizzy as her eyes roamed over the record. There were so many extraordinary things about it that it was hard to know where to begin. A three-digit birth year that made him more than 1,300 years old? Rankings of Master and Grandmaster in two classes of magic, Air and Earth, that were naturally opposed to one another? Or what about learning a completely different system of magic on top of that? And then there was this business about the Special Service Corps and a top-secret Argent Four security rating, neither of which Kate had even heard of. Apparently, she wasn't even allowed to know where the man worked. And yet, for some reason, this man, this immortal, had chosen to contact her. How did he even know who she was? Had Majestrix Kaya been talking about her? Or was it just what he said, that he and Kate had somehow shared the same dream? If that was all, how had he found her? And more importantly, why? I should tell Shaw about this. As soon as the thought occurred to her, though, she doubted it. If Murakir was some kind of top-level secret military operative, he certainly had the ability to contact Shaw directly. Yet he had chosen to come to Kate. Moreover, he had shown an intense worry about being overheard by anyone. Was that paranoia? Kate had thought so at first, but if these ritual murders were part of some kind of repeating pattern then maybe his fears were justified. Just because you're crazy, she thought, it doesn't mean they aren't out to get you. She needed advice she could trust, from someone who understood immortals and would have enough security clearance to give her useful answers. Fortunately, thanks to her recent misadventures, she had just such a person in her contact list. Kate took a deep breath, then dialed a number at Lightbringer headquarters. Will was about halfway through his pile of books when Lizzie came up and sat down beside him. Her ears and whiskers lay back flat against her skull, 
and her tail was lashing anxiously. I have to go, she whispered. She looked miserable at having to break the bad news. The captain gave me and my partner another assignment. Will was a little disappointed, but he gave her an encouraging smile. It's all right. I've already found more with your help than I ever would have on my own. Lizzie nodded once. Do you want to come with me, or stay and keep working? I'll keep working, Will said. If this pattern happened once before, it may have happened more than that. I want to see how far back this thing goes. All right, Lizzie said. Don't be afraid to message me if you need anything. Thanks, I will. Will continued his work for hours, losing all track of time. He chased down every reference he could find to Stanley Hamish Hincallad, both before and after he was identified as the Midnight Snatcher. He also looked for Uriah Mansion and Ernest Drowling, the Snatcher's possible co-conspirators. It wasn't as hard as he might have expected. All three of them seemed to make frequent appearances in the student newsletters, winning recognition for both their academic and their athletic achievements. That was both interesting and odd. Aren't serial killers supposed to be unlikable loners? These guys seem like they were the star students. Will found a special annual issue of the newsletter from 1967, dedicated to highlighting extracurricular activities on campus. He paged through dozens of profiles on fraternities, sororities, activity clubs, athletic clubs, and honor societies. Each one contained a brief description of the club and a list of its current officers. His eyes fell on a page where Hincallid, Mansion, and Drowling all appeared together, and he stopped to take a closer look. The club's description was brief. Key and Arch, Imperial Honor Society The Key and Arch is an imperially recognized honor society, ICHS number 28492 dedicated to leadership training and public service. Membership is by invitation only. Officers, S. Hamish Hincallid, Yuri Manchin, Ernie Drowling. Faculty Advisor, Dr. K. Wainwright. Above the text was an image of the society's symbol, a stone arch with an old-fashioned key inside it. It looked like someone had taken the killer's tattoo and simply removed the skull and chain then made the key bigger to take up the resulting space. Will thought he could guess what it meant. How do you recruit people for a secret society? You could restrict membership to invitation only, but what if a member decided they weren't interested and quit? Whatever they knew of the club wouldn't be a secret anymore. If you wanted to do it right, you'd need some kind of front organization a public face that could vet any new members before you let them know what was really going on. Having a front would solve other problems, too, like how to reserve space for your club on campus. But it also meant there was a paper trail Will could follow. With a bit more searching, he found the class yearbook for the year that matched the newsletter. He flipped through to the back, where the clubs printed their annual membership rosters, as he'd hoped, there were Hincallid, Mansion, and Drowling, as well as sixteen other students. He took a picture. The other names might come in handy later. And while I'm at it, let's see if I can get a more recent list. Will went back to the computer terminal, opened a search window, and typed in Key and Arch. That turned up too many hits, so he added Honor Society 
as a secondary search term. The annual club listing still showed up every year, but the listings for the membership roster stopped after 1973. Right after the Midnight Snatcher killings. Will sat back, thinking. Someone must have figured out the link between Key and Arch and the Midnight Snatcher. They knew Hincalad wasn't acting alone, so they killed his accomplices. After that, the surviving cultists must have learned how to cover their tracks better. But who went after them? Who else knows about these people? Will had no answer to that, and it didn't seem likely he would find one here. Time to switch gears. He had a list of victims' names that he was supposed to investigate, too. Perhaps some of them had been students here. Are you finding everything you're looking for, sir? Will looked up and around. A tall man in a security uniform stood behind his left shoulder, his hands clasped over his belt buckle. He wore a bland expression of polite interest, and could have been anywhere between thirty and fifty. Will sat up a bit straighter in his seat. Yes, thank you. Excellent, the guard said. Could I just see your student ID for a moment, please? Will's heart started pounding. He tried very hard to keep his expression neutral as he pulled out the fake ID card and passed it over. Is there something wrong, sir? Probably nothing, the guard said, as he took out a small, ultraviolet pen light and shone it at the card's security seal. There may have been a cracking attempt on this terminal earlier this morning. They sent me to have a look. Will couldn't prevent the surprised look that flashed across his face. What were you doing on here, Lizzie? The guard noticed. Did you see anything suspicious around here? Anyone using the computer in a way they shouldn't? Will tried to look pensive, which wasn't much of a stretch, since he was thinking hard about how to get out of this. He thought back to some awkward conversations with his mother when he was younger. A piece of the truth is always easier to sell than a lie. I'm not really a computer guy, so I don't know if I'd know something suspicious when I saw it. There was a woman on here for a long time earlier, though. She was a catmorph of some kind, light gray with black and white spots. The guard nodded. He pulled a pen and a small notepad out of his pocket and wrote something down. Did you see anything about what she was working on? The only times I came over here, she was using the normal library search. If she did anything else, I didn't see it. The guard made another note, then put the pen back in his pocket. All right. Thank you, sir. You've been very helpful. Do you mind if I just have a look at that terminal for a minute? Not a problem. Uh, just let me log off. Will did so, then scooted back the chair to give the guard some space. Thank you, sir. Won't be but a moment. As he moved in front of the screen, the guard awkwardly attempted a reassuring pat on Will's shoulder. His hand went too high and touched the side and back of Will's neck. Will flinched at the unwanted contact and felt a slight prick in the skin, like a mosquito bite. Ow! Hey! Will pushed his chair back further. He reflexively swatted away the man's hand, before realizing that was probably an unwise thing to do to a security guard. I'm sorry, he said quickly, holding up his hands with palms outward. I'm sorry, you just startled me. I... Will stopped. He looked at his hands. They were fuzzy around the edges, 
and they seem to have too many fingers. What is... Fumblingly, Will reached up to his neck where the guard had touched him. He felt something there, like a nicotine patch. What? Will's head swam. A distant ringing filled his ears. He tried to get out of his chair, to get away, to get to some place where he might be seen. His last memory was of slumping forward, landing face first on the library floor. Then the world went away. And that's the end of chapter 35. Come back next time when Will meets Jared and Kate gets some very helpful information from an old ally. Langston Hughes said, In all my life I have never been free. I have never been able to do anything with freedom, except in the field of my writing. So shake the shackles from your mind, and follow me to the weekly writing report. In the last two weeks, I wrote 13,038 words in 18.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 705 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 126 days without breaking my chain. Homecoming has once again taken an unexpected twist. I'm writing this story entirely from John's point of view, and John made a decision that separated him from Kate and the rest of their group. This was a big growth moment for his character, so I decided to run with it and see where it goes. But it has meant a lot of scrambling to figure out who these new characters are whom he's fallen in with, and what Kate and the others are going to do behind the scenes while John is in limbo. I'm now in chapter 22, and the manuscript is a hair under 63,000 words. Looking back at the month of January, I wrote 24,069 words in 24 days, averaging 1,003 words per day. That makes January 2019 my seventh most productive month since I started this podcast, and my second highest month since September 2016. I also met my new goal of writing on at least 24 days in the month. I spent a total of 34.75 hours writing in January. Compared to December, my word count increased by 71%, and my writing time increased by 65%. Over on the Patreon feed, we have two new patrons this month. Say hello to Jeffrey and Paul. If you like my stories and you want to help me keep making them, becoming a patron is the very best thing you can do to support me. For $3 a month, you get early access to art previews, sneak peeks, cover reveals, and other cool stuff. Plus, all my patrons get monthly bonus art from my talented Metamore City artists, as well as my exclusive behind-the-episode author commentary podcast. Just head on over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester, take a look at the reward levels, and make a pledge today. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. 
My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.